Welcome to Gaia's Disclosure Podcast. Go beyond the mainstream to uncover hidden truths and decode ancient origins. If you want to go deeper, visit Gaia.com. Watch interviews, movies, and original series created to empower a community of fellow seekers. For more information, visit GaiaDisclosure.com. In 2003, my blood boiled when I learned that American military troops ransacked the ancient Iraq city of Ur after we invaded Iraq, spray-painting the ancient artifacts. Ur was considered at the time to be the most ancient city on Earth, home of the biblical Abraham. Now, however, it appears that a nearby city named Eridu is even more ancient and laden with cuneiform tablets telling of our ancient history. And guess what? It's being openly looted of its treasures by local intruders for profit on the black market. Our ancient history lost once again. Matthew LaCroix is as incensed as I was over it, and he's here to tell us the significance of Eridu and what we can do about the looting. This is a big deal. You're passionate about it. And, you know, Matthew, when I saw your, your, you have a documentary that you did on this, and you were able to obtain some photographs that maybe weren't licensed, per se, of these looters, <laughs> yeah. so it's kind of on the down low. Yeah, right. But it really, it just got me going all over again to see this is happening. And you and I are having this conversation because I want to not only find out about the site itself and what's there, but why. Okay. Yeah. So, first of all, let's talk about the city of Eridu and its historical significance. Most people have never heard of it. Yeah. Uh, Eridu, for me, is uh, quite dear to my heart because, you know, one of the focus areas that I've had studying throughout the years has been ancient Mesopotamian history, looking into Sumerian, Akkadian, and Babylonian tablets and trying to piece together this lost story of humanity. Because truthfully, when you go through the records, and you look at what are the oldest writings that still exist today? Is it, are they paper records? Are they papyrus? What, it, what are those older records? And they, you really find out that they're, um, they're what's known as cuneiform tablets, this etched in um, symbols into clay or, or stone. And then the clay, if it's in that case, um, is often fired up and, and, and turned into this hard material that can survive for thousands of years. And the, the ancient Sumerians wrote um, more than 50,000 cuneiform tablets um, over the course of history that have been discovered in various libraries. And we, uh, when we read those tablets, when we try to take and look at every version, Sumerian, Akkadian, and Babylonian, the same theme comes up over and over in every single one. It's mentioned in, it, in at least a dozen tablets, and that is that Eridu is the very first city ever created here on the planet not something where nomadic hunters and gatherers decided just to group together, but a, a divine kingship lowering from heaven and creating the first civilization. So Eridu is quite dear to my heart. And that's why, you know, Regina, when, what you just mentioned about what's going on there, it's truly tragic. It is tragic. And one of the things that's interesting before we go on with this is everybody's looking at timelines, always looking at timelines. We have no idea. The one thing I think humanity needs to be a little bit more humble about is we have no idea how ancient our human history is, right? Exactly. And so some will say, okay, well, Lemuria. Well, Lemuria was a half a million, a million years ago. Others will say, well, we know Atlantis was at least a quarter of a million years ago, up to about 12,000 years ago. But you're saying that in your opinion that the ancient city of Eridu in Mesopotamia is the most ancient civilization. And so describe that, and, and, it's, and I want to get into this a little further because this is where nuanced thinking comes in. 
Yeah. Um, you know, and listen, I love to speculate on Atlantis yeah. and Lemuria Mu and try to figure out where that fits into the timeline. Yeah. And we have some clues, you know, based on Solon and, and based on Plato's descriptions of it. But in the end, the only date that he gives for, for Atlantis is when it was destroyed. Right. He doesn't actually say when it was first no, created. Not at so all. we have to try to backtrack and look at some of the evidence. And what I'm end up funneling down my my path is that I look and say, well, we have evidence to show how old Eridu is. So that gives us a little bit of a, a, a ballpark to try to create a timeline. And not only that, but there are other cities and tablets mentioned that have distinctions on events like this great deluge, this catastrophe of right. potentially like the Younger Dryas and how there were cities that existed before and then cities that existed after. And really what we find in that is that Take some, for an example, take like the Sumerian King List, the, one of the most well-known of mm -hmm. all the cuneiform tablets mm -hmm. that people, when they go down this road, they study and they, it blows their mind because the Sumerian King List gives this accurate record of ancient kings that ruled in these early Sumerian cities. And what it says in there as the, as the preface for the beginning of it, it says, when kingship was lowered from heaven, kingship was in Eridu. And so we look at that and we say, okay. Does, is that verifiable with other tablets? We look mm -hmm. at Eridu, Genesis, Uruk, List of Kings, and we find the same mention over and over again. So we know that that's the first city, but how old is it? Right. And that's what we, we get into some interesting aspects of when you, uh, when you add up like the Sumerian king list and you try to figure out, well, the kings ruled for these, these reigns and then this is when it was first created. You get like a 200, 250,000 year old right. story. And, and Eridu right. is the center of that story. Yeah, so there we go. We're talking roughly a quarter of a million years yeah. just there. Not what the uh, Wikipedia entry says. No, <laughs> certainly not. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not funding Wikipedia anymore, actually. <laughs> but this is interesting because I think it's important to understand for all of us that what I've come to understand over the years, that many of these ancient cultures, as far as we can see, were concurrent. So you have Egypt as an ancient culture that's developing. But what stage of development? We don't know at any given stage. Most of those pyramids are under the sands. Yeah, the right. early ones are gone. I mean, they're buried, right? And so it's the same with this, but at least you have something because of the king's list. Yeah. So, so let's just play with the notion that it could be 200, 250,000 years as a city. Okay. That makes us a much more sophisticated species than we thought. Yeah, and it changes, it changes the entire narrative. You know, it changes yeah. this, this doctrine that we have of, of civilization only being 6,000 years old. Exactly. And everything fitting into that tight little neat um, area of time, it just doesn't make it any doesn't. sense, right? Mm -hmm. You look at the er erosion marks on the Sphinx enclosure, exactly. and you really can just prove while well, you say, look, we know that there wasn't enough rainfall during this time period in history to be able to create that erosion. Right. So we therefore have to look beyond that. Look at the alignments with Leo. Look at the Sphinx. Look at the Great Pyramids alignments with Sirius and Orion and try to understand, well, when did they align? Right. And, and how does that play into Eridu and ancient Mesopotamia? And as we're going to go along, you could find out that they're all connected. Yes. Okay, so this is at the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates River. This is the cradle of civilization, this valley. And near this, and in fact, up north from it, is uh, Gobekli Tepe. All this starts tying together now that they've dug there and see the sophistication of what was left behind there. So we'll go into a little tale about that area. But it also appears that one of the, you said the king's list 
once you're able to read cuneiform. And Billy Carson told me you can actually read it. Yeah, I'm studying to actually learn how to read it myself. I love it. Yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's, not, a diff- it's not an easy task, though. No, <laughs> not at all. And you rely on a few translators that you have a lot of respect sure. for that are consistent. I think it's fair now to bring up, before I go here, Zechariah Sitchin's interpretations, because that it, there are two schools of thought on that one. Yeah, and um, so the more that I dug into this, you know, like a lot of individuals, most will start with Zechariah Sitchin because he's very well known. His books have reached so many people around the world. And that's where I started my path. But I quickly realized that, you know, because I'm an objective person, right? I'm not just, I don't just create a story because it sounds good and go with it. If I go with the evidences. Mm-hmm. And I became very, very interested, almost obsessed with that story of this ancient um, Anunnaki Mesopotamian story. And I wanted to know if what he was saying was accurate. And as I go, I went along, I realized, well, not everything he was saying was, is, was completely accurate. You know, he, he had some aspects of truth in there, but then there was a lot that I disagreed with. And so I went back to the books and I said, well, I want to look into the history of who first translated these tablets, right. who these Assyriologist experts are, and then who's verified each other's work. And I truly, you get this, you get a story that goes back to um, really beginning in 1849 with Austin Henry Laird, when... Um, University of Oxford, they came down to the Iraqi area and they were looking for ancient libraries and ancient cities. And what they found was in the ancient city of Nineveh in Iraq, which by the way, was destroyed by ISIS and is no longer there any longer. Mm-hmm. What they found is the greatest library ever amassed in history, even more important than the Library of Alexandria, which was burned by, down by the Romans and most of those records lost. But the difference is that no one, most people have never even heard of this library. Right. And, and that library Spell is called... Spell it out for people who sure. want to. Yeah. It's, so it's the Royal Asher Bonapal Library. And A-S-H-U-N-B-A-N-P-A-L. And he was this um, really unique individual in history where a lot of these kings and rulers during this, these time frames, they were conquerors. They just conquered other, other areas and they, they wanted great wealth and power. But he was a different kind of ruler. He was a ruler who truly wanted to protect the legacy of history, the information of history. He was a high priest. He was a scholar. And so he used his power to send out armies to every part of the region to go amass and find these tablets, which had, were already ancient during his time period. Right. And, and what was his time period? Uh, well, that's the thing. We're trying to recreate the timeline of right. history because that doctrine of 6,000 years is truly something that we have to move everything into sure, different places. Sure. Um, he probably lived somewhere around 4,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So he, ha- he was dedicated to preserving history and knowledge. So um, that was discovered in the mid-1800s. And so let's talk about what happened with that information okay. once it was rediscovered. Yeah, so Austin Henry Laird found more than 50,000 cuneiform tablets in this ancient library that had been burned to the ground and actually helped preserve the tablets even better because of the heat. Mm-hmm. And they were buried under layers of sand and they found, they found them and they, and they looked at these tablets and they had absolutely no idea how to read them. It was unlike any language they'd ever seen before. And if, and if you study Sumerian, you learn that it's what's known as a language isolate. There's nothing that's shared by it. It's unique in its own. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even use an alphabet. Mm-hmm. It has just enormous amounts of different characters related to words that you, you combine to, to, to figure out what the story is. So for more than 20 years, these tablets remained unknown for what they were. It was a language that had died out and had not been spoken by, for thousands of years. Right. And so these tablets remained for, for more than 20 years until a man named George Smith um, in, in 1875 
finally cracked the code and figured out how to actually read it. And the first tablets that he translated was the Epic of Gilgamesh. And he, he realized that here we have a story that talks about origins and the great deluge and these different kings and rulers at different times and all these incredible aspects. And from there, um, individuals like Samuel and Noah Kramer and Stephanie Daly have come and confirmed his, his translations to try to get this piece, this story back together from the past. And so what was it in the Sitchin story that you did not resonate with in particular? Yeah, there was a number of terms and, and ways that he interpreted things that um, just were not very accurate. If you go back to read the records, for instance, that he talked about how we were created to mine gold and, and toil in this place is like a, almost like a slave species. But in really what you find is they don't talk about gold mining or anything like that at all. They actually talk about how the ancient Ajiji, a subset of the Anunnaki, were trying to create infrastructure here. They were, it actually talks about how they were laying bricks in pure places and the Ajiji were building temples and they were clearing lifelines of the, the river channels. So that was what I think some of the confusion over mining was because they were clearing river channels of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers so that they could have an extensive agricultural system to create the blueprints of a civilization. You have to have certain criteria and certain things to be able to create a civilization, and they knew that. Right. And that was what they were, they were doing there. But the story going forward on where we came from and how we associate with that was just quite a bit different. Right. Okay. And so the whole notion of slave species doesn't exactly play out the same way. No, in fact... Because I have a great objection to the term slave species. Yeah, I, I do as well. In fact, it's complete, really the opposite is that we were, we were created um, by some and almost like perfection in the universe. How we were, we were created perfect for this planet, but also to be truly like beings that could ascend to a, a place of enormous power and, and potential. And that power and potential has been forgotten in us. And we have, we have lost our way over such a long period of time. All these catastrophes that have come and reset us back and having to relearn everything again. And we really are a shadow of our former self right now. Right. We just have to wake up, remember. <laughs> right. And that's what you're trying to help people that's what do. what I'm trying to do. Well, that is interesting because even in the world of UFOlogy and some of the people who've written books back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, a little, there was a little more sanity around the subject in a certain sense at that time. Um, it has been said that there are at least 400,000 humanoid species just in our galaxy. And so if that's true, it appears that this form that we have now and the form the Anunnaki came in, and we see slight iterations of longer skulls, of fewer fingers and so forth yeah. here and there, but it appears to be a form that's quite um, diversely capable. Yeah, yeah, it seems like... Um you know, we don't know all the different species that exist in the universe. You know, no. we only have this little glimpse of, you know, this might be this, this might be that. But yeah. one of the things we know for certain is we were created in their image. Yeah. Meaning that they looked like us. And mm -hmm. you can see depictions and murals of them. They're much taller than we were. And I think really that's where the whole story of the Nephilim comes in with these giant kings ruling. That's, that's the, the image of them. That's what they are. We are like a child of them created in their right. image. So we're just another iteration of a humanoid species. Exactly. Basically. Exactly. Which is highly functional. We have opposable thumbs. That's okay. right. <laughs> okay. So let's get into Eridu and let's talk about some of the gods sure. because this starts, to me, it's fascinating when it starts crossing over into biblical characters. That's right. So let's get into Anlil and Inki. Many uh, of the people watching this right now, our audience, have heard of them, yeah. but you go ahead and tell it the way you understand it. Okay, so when you look at ancient Sumerian records and you, and you look at the history of it, what you find is that 
this archetype of what these gods are portraying is not just based on forces of nature or the planets. They're, they're real, real beings, they're deities that seem to have a very significant role in our story. It seems that our story begins with them, as I said, with the creation of us. But, but that creation came after the first cities, the first city was created. So Eridu existed before even mankind was created. And it may even be where the biblical Eden is along the, the banks of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. Mm -hmm. That area was much different um, 10 plus thousand years ago than it is now. It was much, it had more water, it was much more lush, and now it's more of a desert. But we have to remember, you know, thing, the, the only constant is, is change. You know, climates change, things change over time. Mm -hmm. And so the way that the, the Sumerian stories really start is that basically there was this need to create a uh, steward, someone who could manage the infrastructure here, someone who could be do the role of the Anunnaki because they decided that um, based on the Ajiji's revolt and not wanting to do that work anymore, that we would be created to alleviate the toil of the gods. That's the term they use. So that we would be the ones doing all the things here and you know building temples and, and bringing whatever they needed to... Um, for, for those temples. And what's amazing about Eridu is that's where, if you look at the creator God who created mankind, Enki, meaning uh, Lord of the earth, E-N means Lord, and Enlil, his, uh, his half-brother, who in, in a lot of the ancient stories really opposes how we were created. He, he, was, he, f he felt quite threatened that we were uh, created in too much like their image and that we would uh, basically ascend and eventually become even greater than he did. So there was a lot of tension between the two of them. And so that's really why um, it really weaves into why this city is so important because Enki, the creator of mankind, along with his sister uh, Ninma, that was where it all began. That was where first civilization first began and our story first began right there in Eridu. And if you, if you, so if you look at the history of Eridu, you find out that there's an ancient city of the Eridu and then there's the, the, the ziggurat of Eridu right next to it. And that site is where all of these issues are today, where mm -hmm. it has been deliberately ignored and, and deliberately left to the wolves so that this site can truly just disappear in history and never be known. Gaia.com lets you explore over 8,000 films, documentaries, and original series. There's so much going on in the unseen world. Hidden truth. Why in the media today? They still seem to hold back on these incredible stories. Behind an unknown universe. Where science and spirituality all come together. Gaia.com. Content you can't find anywhere else. For more information, visit GaiaDisclosure.com. It's it is fascinating that all the attention has come back around to the same area the points of conflict. Um, so what's interesting to me also, there are a few things. I'm going to throw the other part, the, the uh, metaphysical part into it. Uh, you're doing the research on all of the physical evidence you can find. And that is that in far memory uh, experiences of people, in other words, those who can go back into other times, um, one thing that's been noted is genetic manipulation and genetic en engineering around the planet in these projects where yeah. they're humans were genetically engineered for whatever purpose regionally was needed. And that holds up with hundreds or thousands of people who've gone back in time have now documented through their own experience without knowing anything about it. Wow, that's interesting. They were doing some genetic work on us. And so this keeps popping up randomly. So that, that overlays with the physical evidence of what you're talking about in the cuneiform uh, tablets. The other part 
to me that's fascinating in all this when you're trying to interpret it is that uh, I, I believe in the wheel of incarnations, yes. you know. So um, people who were there at that time are certainly around now. I mean, we keep coming back. So there are people who actually were probably authors of some of those cuneiform tablets. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Maybe even you um, <laughs> that are authors of these that are back to interpret for that very reason because they can. The other, if I tried to do it, I'd probably never be able to do it. But if it's already in you, if that information is already in you, these people, I believe many have come back to help reveal our history to us. Yeah, um, that's, that's what I like to think too. And I, I feel like this incredible need to help this site yeah. um, is something deep within me. And I, 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 it's hard to figure out what that is. Well, you were born to do this. You're obsessed and it's wonderful. <laughs> I'm so happy you are because you're so clear in your research and you're so clear in your articula articulation of it. Uh, rather than going in as a rah-rah for somebody else, you know, to uphold someone else's story, you're really trying to cut through and find what's true for all of us. Yeah, and, you know, the, really the way that it hits home to me is not only the significance of this site, and we're going to get into some of the other things that, that play in as well with the star yes. connections and all those things, but, you know, to see images, like you mentioned, that I've saved and, and shown, like in, in the other documentary that I had made, to see people just walking up and finding most ancient records of mankind. Yeah. The, the libraries of our story sitting, sticking out of these, these ancient temple walls and out of this ancient temple mountain and people just finding them and just showing no respect, yeah. taking them and going to st steal them and sell them just, you know, for money. It's, um, to me, it's the ultimate crime. Oh, yeah. It I really yeah. is. I like, agree with you. And for you, it's, it just breaks your heart. It, it really does. It actually, it, it, hits, <clears throat> it hits home. And that's why I created that campaign called Campaign to Protect Eridu mm -hmm. so that we can help bring awareness to this site because honestly, it, it, you like to think, well, somebody else will do this. No, maybe, maybe they won't, they haven't. right? Exactly. They haven't, so. So I'm, I'm doing it and, and others are, are helping to bring awareness to a lot of these organizations that have de like decided to ignore this site and forget it. And if we get enough support enough awareness about these ancient sites, we can protect them and get those ancient records and have them studied so we can understand our story to an even deeper level. Okay, so you talked about a couple of temples, one regular kind and one regular sided uh, pyramid, but also the ziggurat temple, right? Which is different in nature. Now, one of them was dedicated to the underworld and people don't really understand what that means. As they think often, oh, does that mean Satan? Uh, what does this mean? So let's talk about the temple connected with the underworld that's there. Okay, so the there's two sites at Eridu that are important. There may be more. We, we again, that area hasn't really been uncovered very well, so right. we still have so much to, to find. But you have the main city of Eridu itself, mm -hmm. which is the only area that's ever been excavated. Mm -hmm. It was excavated for subsequently for late, late 1800s, briefly, up through um, 1946 to 1948. We'll get to that, okay. that's interesting. Okay, um, but what's important is that we look at the ziggurat of Eridu, known as, it's also the, the, the main name, if you were to look in ancient texts, it's called the E-Abzu Temple. Okay, so that's the E, it's named after Enki, and it's his temple, because the interesting aspect when you really look into the tablets is that the Anunnaki seem to take up different roles in our reality. That was really, it's the thing that's echoed throughout all of them is that, like Enlil, um, god of, you know, lord of the sky or the heavens, and then Enki, lord of the earth, he was designated to become a ruler in the underworld. 
Now that there's some serious connotations that yeah, re- there are religion a lot had. Of misunderstandings. Yeah, later on about this being the place where the hell is and yeah. all those terms. No, those terms aren't real. That's that's just a, those are scare tactics and fear-based things. Really, what it comes down to is you think of the Earth as a realm, and you have higher dimensions, lower dimensions. You have the surface where the physical reality is. Then you have everything underneath us, and that's what was is called the underworld. Now, just, you know, if you look at the ancient Egyptians, they were obsessed with the underworld. That was where they figured that incarnation and, and reaching higher states of energy was. Not to mention, you could go down in and connect to potentially the gods in, in ways that you couldn't above. It was a different kind of energy mm-hmm. coming down to the center of the earth, having the aquifer systems and the, the connections that they had with the pyramids and all those systems. The same thing is true, though, in Eridu, but it's a little bit different because the E Abzu Temple is called that because it's literally the temple of the underworld. That's what that that's what that name breaks down to. And when you look at depictions of Eridu, in that ziggurat, the way that they had um, artists rendering from descriptions before you know it it collapsed and became what it is now, you saw ancient temple openings in multiple places that went down in, mm-hmm. and we don't know where they go. And mm-hmm. that's what's really interesting is that ziggurat mountain where the temple's been eroding, mm-hmm. where those tablets are, that's never been excavated by archaeologists ever. Which is insane. It's just completely insane. There are, not only are those treasures uh, on, on the mountain, mountain itself, like the tablets and the, and the clay pots, but there may be literal underworld entrances that go down to who knows where. Right. And that's very exciting to think about. It is very exciting to think about. We can go a couple different directions. One, just to, again, lay down a little bit of framework historically. One thing that we didn't mention a bit ago is when they started doing excavation, and you have photos of this in your documentary, it's laden with seashells. That's right. So the city was buried after the uh, due to the inundation it was yeah. buried that's and that's another piece of the Underwater. evidence yeah. right and you say okay well the sumerian king list is some people could add up dates wrong yeah. that may be suspect but what about when you get physical evidence like yeah. this right where you look and you know you can see some of those images i have on that documentary yeah. where the because this mountain was never excavated it was right. almost left in place and there are literally like you said are seashells Strewn, strewn across oh, the top of the mountain, exactly. which you you think, well, how could something like that even happen? And you really look at the the deluge stories that are in these tablets carried right. all over, and you really find that there were catastrophes in Earth's history right. where things like maybe the Mediterranean Black Sea and the Persian Gulf had these walls of water that came through and destroyed mm-hmm. everything. And I and I think that that's the ultimate proof for how these seashells got laid in that spot mm-hmm. and how it proves that this city is older than the flood. So, yes, exactly. So that takes us back at least 12,000 years exactly. anyway. Okay, now let's go to the above part. They had alignments that have become well-known at other uh, famous sacred sites as well with the stars, with a constellation. So let's talk about their alignments. Okay, so the first place to point out, so when people start looking at these ancient sites and the significance of what they, how they play for why they were built in, in the certain locations they are, there's a couple of things to consider. The first is that there seems to be this, this line around the earth that's known as the 30th parallel. Mm-hmm. It's this location between the middle of the land masses and, the, and above the equator where it was very important for them to build right on that line. Mm-hmm. Now, that's just one of the things that's very interesting. Like, for instance, you look at where Eridu is, you, you look at, you go west, you look at where the Great Pyramids of Giza are, you go, continue just to the east, you look at the ancient city of like Persepolis and Iran and Nashi Rostam, and then you keep going over like Angor Wat and all these places. They're all found right on this 30th degree parallel, but there's more. 
there's also these ley line connections on the Earth that co correspond exactly to the same locations too. And there's even others as well as we get into star alignments. But the, as I was saying just now before when I mentioned that, go to a place like, like the Great, Pyramid, uh, Great Pyramids of Giza, right? Look at how those pyramids are aligned. And then you, you take some of the work like Freddie Silva and Graham Hancock and Robert Schock and mm -hmm. all these great minds. And they noticed and identified that, hey, wait a minute. Not only are these pyramids aligned to Sirius and Orion during a certain time period of history mm -hmm. to show how old they are, but they're also aligned to the three belt stars of Orion. And we see that in Teotihuacan as well. But what we also see it is in other new discoveries that are being made. For instance, uh, you had Freddie Silva on your show recently. He was discussing the connections with Gobekli Tepe with the Great Pyramids. Right. And that was a fascinating connection that I thought was very helpful for identifying some, other, some of these other connections. So what, what Freddie was talking about that was so brilliant is that when you look at Gobekli Tepe, its original name wasn't Potbelly Hill, it was Portasar. And Portasar means umbilical cord of, of Osiris. And Osiris was, um, one of the ancient connections it had was that it had a deep connection to relate to the Orion, the stars of Orion. Mm -hmm. And that was like a symbolic way to connect uh, Osiris. So, so if the three um, pyramids of Giza are aligned to the three bell stars of Orion and Gobekli Tepe is, is the umbilical cord of Orion, mm -hmm. then what else is connected? And I started to really look at this. And one of the really significant connections I found was when I was looking at star charts and I noticed where Orion is, where the umbilical cord is with Gobekli Tepe, how everything aligns, and thinking about the law of correspondence, as above, so below, and the fact that it seems like everything's being built here to mirror the heavens, mm -hmm. to mirror the cosmos. To mirror their heavens. Exactly. And what you found was that, that the river of Euph the Euphrates River and potentially even the Tigris, they may have had a very different flow direction back in the day and it looks like when you connect Gobekli Tebe at the headwaters with Eridu down at the Persian Gulf and all the other ancient Sumerian cities in between, you get an exact mirroring of the Eridanus constellation. And Eridanus is what connects to Orion in the stars. Mm -hmm. It's a star connection. Yeah. And it's their star connection. That's right. That they, they created it to not just mimic, but bring, as you say, below where they are familiar with from above. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, uh, it looks like they were creating that heaven on yes, earth heaven here. On earth, and yeah. furthermore, even the stars of Eridanus may exactly correlate to where these cities were built. That's yeah. why Eridu has such a similar name to Eridanus. Yeah, exactly. Well, and if you take the notion that we've had periodic pole reversals through time, of course the waters are going to run a little bit differently. Everything's going to reconfigure itself. So the fact that there's even this much history that's this well preserved, if indeed we're talking about a culture that could be a quarter of a million years old, is phenomenal. Yeah. We've even gotten this far, really. Yeah, right. So now let's talk about what happened in 1948. Um, I just find this so peculiar. Um, let's talk about it. Okay, so the University of Oxford um, and a couple other, like the Iraqi Museum and a few other institutions, they went back to Eridu after an extended period of time of not being at the site. There was work done in the late 1800s, and they were in the city of Eridu excavating, and then that kind of stopped. And then they, they went down and they revisited again the site in, from the years 1946 to 1948, and they found tablets. There's even one displayed in the University of Oxford yeah, Eureka. today. Eureka. 
right? They found information. It's not like they went there, they didn't discover anything, and they decided to move on. They found tablets, displayed them, identified. The British Museum. Yeah, right. They displayed, and they found where the first city on Earth was, and then, poof, they just abandoned the site. That The site itself has been ignored, and the last time it was excavated was 1948. And then all of a sudden, there must have been some kind of a memo <laughs> brought down, right, where hey, let's, um, let's leave this site alone and not touch it ever again, basically. I just don't understand that. Not on any uh, logical level, this, this doesn't make any sense. If you have discovered something that profound and ancient, why wouldn't universities all over the world have been all over this? Why wouldn't governments be trying to stake out their claim? Yeah. Why? Well, I mean, now, okay, the Americans went into Iraq, yeah. and we're not a very well-educated population, is certainly when they went in there with the notion that uh, the people, the native people there, the Iraqis are primitive people with primitive yeah. art and yeah. primitive cities. It was a very primitive way to view yeah. people in another part of the world. So we weren't respectful. We talked about that in the beginning. Go in and just start trashing the joint. Let's talk about some of what was trashed and also how the Americans started essentially uh, taking over those areas. Okay, so the first place to start is why did this happen? Yeah, you know, well, how could this be? There's gotta be a reason, right? Well, there's, well, that's it. There's two major reasons in my mind. The first reason is, you know, this city being as old as it is, specifically mentioned as being the first city, right? And having that evidence there for it, it would completely change the narrative of human history. I mean, we would have to completely rewrite this whole story, yes, of right? Course. So you have that issue right there as well. But I think there's an even deeper issue. And I think it gets into religious context because of the way that Enki became demonized in, in religion. He was the serpent. That was his symbol. He was the serpent god or the metamorphosis that eventually became the dragon, like you see in a lot of ancient cultures. But that's why you see this influence of like in, in the Americas, for instance, Kukukan to the Maya, Quetzalcoatl to the, to the Aztec, Viracocha. These are all serpent gods of wisdom and knowledge. And what happened? Well, later on, they were conquered by the mighty eagle, and this became a demonized uh, place, right? Enki became this Satan figure in the underworld. That's why when you look at um, the trident and then the pitchfork, the trident was one of his, his original... Um, symbols that he had with him in, in, during ancient Atlantean times. And then it became inverted to the pitchfork and this, right. this, this hell devil figure down there. And that's because he became a threat. He created us in perfection. He was, he was the creator, crafty creator God of, of our history. And he became demonized because it goes back to the, the story of the Garden of Eden. He is the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve to eat of the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And remember, there's this God figure in that story that didn't want that. And I really think that I've, uh, you really look at the parallels of that story, that that God figure is Enlil. If Enlil, it, how did he gain that degree of prominence and control? Well, it's a complex story. Even though Enki is considered his title as Lord of the Earth, right. Enlil ended up being in control of, of most of the story here. Most well, of we're our, talking Old Testament stuff. We're talking about... Yeah kind of pitiful gods, really, punishing yeah. and pitiful gods yeah. that would have you, you know, kneeling before them and exactly. begging for crumbs, that Old Testament stuff, which I never believed, even at yeah. five. So that doesn't make any sense. But how did that take hold? It took hold of all the major world religions. That's right. And those are the Abrahamic religions exactly. that, came, that came after that. And you feel, I've, I feel like if you look at those parallels of that jealous god, Enlil, who, who in Gnostic texts like the Nag Hammadi, he talks about how 
his name in there is Yaldabaoth, and he is, he's a jealous God of humanity that is so jealous that he casts us down into the lowest form of matter. Right. That's as a quote from that. Right. And that same figure is also, I believe, Yahweh mm-hmm. in the Old Testament, right. who is, like you said, he's, he's an angry, jealous God that demands sacrifice and oh, all these God. things. Blood sacrifice. And, but that's why... Enki became demonized because he took over religion as this powerful figure and Enki was this evil serpent underworld hell all these connotations that's why one of the reasons why I think this site has also been abandoned and so at this point in time where knowledge can can and information can flow freely around the planet why continue to keep the roost going yeah. Um, what, what's the point? It's like they're trying to hold on to scraps as long as they possibly can, even though so many in the world are, are discovering that this is an ancient city or the first city, and you're, you're, they're literally like outraged. I have a lot of people who have commented on that documentary and on this information just in complete disbelief that something like this is happening to one of the most important, if not the I most important, sites in history. Yeah. And I think that's why this show is so important, talking to you, because we can bring that necessary awareness to protect our, our story and all the most important archaeological places in history. Okay, we have the, the, the governments, the academic world, we have religions who might all resist having a new story of our history emerge. But as I was pointing out earlier, it seems like that time is now closing, that, that window for them. And maybe, you're, like you say, do a little bit of pillaging and raping on the way out the door while you can is still going on. But tell, tell us your vision of what that story would bring to humanity by way of our own empowerment, if it were allowed to get out. Yeah, so there's a tablet called the Myth of Adapa, and it discusses how Adapa was not the first man created, but the first perfect man created. And he lived in Eridu. Mm -hmm. And it it discusses how he lived there and he was one of the great sages. And they called these sages the Apkalu. And there were seven great sages around the world. And Enki, um, basically his, his incarnation as a king there was known as Nunamid. And they had this perfect story created where humanity was reaching these higher states of consciousness. And then, of course, the whole thing fragmented and language was, was, mm-hmm. was, was injected in and all these different divisions of humanity. And we mm-hmm. all became, you know, at, at almost at, at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really all started there. And that's where not only the perfect man, the perfect, the perfect human was created, but it was where essentially these um, divisions of the gods really began. That's where the conversations were. That's where they decided to create these aspects of um, above and below of our reality so that they can create this, um, I guess some would, some would wonder, you know, what exactly they created here. Is it a control system or is it more of just a way to manage mankind? It's an interesting aspect, but I think that the possibilities of what we could discover in Eridu if we were able to go in and excavate it are literally endless. Well, if it's all the whole notion of created in their image, then that means we're quite capable. Yeah. And I think that's really the story right there. I think that the institutions and religions of the world do not want us as human beings to know just how incredibly capable we already are. Yeah. And imagine if we had our memory back, how incredibly capable we would be. How angry we'd be at what happened, right? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And capable. So uh, just a little bit, how can people... Uh, become involved in in helping with this effort to uh, preserve Eridu. 
I mean, are you looking for are you looking for institutional help? Are you looking for GoFundMe campaign? What are you looking for? What would you like to see in an ideal outcome? Yeah, and I'm really um, in that documentary. I put a number of names that people can contact. I, I didn't include email or phone numbers because I was going to leave it open to people. I didn't want to just be like call this number yeah. and all that stuff. But I wanted people to reach out in their own creative ways that are nonviolent, so that we can. Um, overwhelm this this system to bring protection to this site. Um, UNESCO, all the way to the University of Oxford, um, the Iraqi Antiquities, the head of the Iraqi Museum. Um, I could go on and on. There's so many institutions that control um, this, this archaeological doctrine that if enough pressure is put on them, that something can change. I mean, that's that's the only power that we have is, is the people here, right? Nice. To truly use our voice to to make to make change. And I, the, what I see envision here is. If we were able to get enough people to make enough noise, you know, especially like doing mm-hmm. this discussion with you right mm-hmm. now, we can we can literally change the future. This site could be preserved and not just studied by one institution, but what if it was studied by a collaboration of every archaeological organization in the world? Because right. we're all humans, exactly. we're all people. We need to all understand our story and where it began. And I, I envision something like a Project Eridu where it, you know, the public demanded not only protection, but maybe complete openness and awareness where yes. we found another tablet and then they just show the new translation and everyone's maybe excited to find out what comes out on like a, you know, a monthly or a six month basis and like something to keep up with it. This could be an exciting thing because it's, I wanna have you understand, um, Regina, the significance is that you can't see a site like this anywhere in the world. And what I mean by that is, if, when you study our ancient sites, most of them have at least been identified. You know, there are some under the ground that are not known yeah, about, right, like in right. the, the jungles of Guatemala, right. for sure. But places that are exposed on the surface that are known, they all are at least partially excavated and somewhat protected. This site is like completely abandoned. Yeah. And it's been, and not only that, but as I said, the ziggurat of Eridu was never even touched. And it just right. remains sitting there with all these records just sticking. Literally, cuneiform records are tablets are like sticking yeah, out of I the know. ground. It's, just, it's, it's so unbelievable. sad. I know. I mean, it's like, how could this, how is it possible this has happened? But I think we've kind of looked at a few of the motives, maybe. Yeah. A few of the motives, but nonetheless, I agree with you. I think the time for secrecy, that kind of shadow ownership is over, be it the Americans or the Iraqis controlling it. This is something that belongs to all of humanity. I agree with you 100%. And I'm glad if you were there then and back now, or if you just came here for the first time, however it rolls, I'm just happy you're so completely devoted to making this happen. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I really, I love what you're doing. My pleasure. It's a a passion of mine. Oh, yeah. You can go to thestageoftime.com to see how you can take part in protecting Eridu. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gaia's Disclosure Podcast. To learn even more, go to Gaia.com, where you can watch interviews, movies, and original series. Gaia.com, content you can't find anywhere else. For more information, visit GaiaDisclosure.com.